Change. This is 702 for the curious. Indeed it is, and it's 28 minutes to 9 o'clock. I'm joined on the line by Karen Morn, specialist reporter at TSO Black Star. Karen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, the National Prosecuting Authority outlined in, a co- in court today how it believed former President Jacob Zuma had used extensive litigation known as the Stalingrad defense to delay being prosecuted on fraud and corruption charges. And this obviously was in response to President, uh, former President uh, Jacob Zuma's lawyers saying that he had not been given his day in courts. In fact, he'd been denied that even when he was president. Uh, a lot of people are looking at this case and I uh, suppose they've got their eyes narrowed like me watching and uh, waiting to see if this is going to be a fair, uh, free and fair uh, trial for Jacob Zuma and ultimately if we're going to see any prosecutions. What are the prospects of that given uh, this stage of the trial, uh, Karen? Well, I think it's really about what this court makes of the, of the arguments that Zuma and Tyler have brought that there's been an unreasonable delay in their prosecution which was caused by the NPA and that that unreasonable delay has had forensic implications for them in terms of being able to recollect the events at play here. Talis is saying, well, we don't have access to crucial witnesses. We don't even know if they're alive or dead. They're untraceable. Interpol can't find them. How do we defend ourselves against these charges? Zuma, of course, contending, first of all, that Bulalani and Luka should have charged him with Shabir Sheikh. Um, and did not, and that caused him prejudice and, and tarnished his name, etc. And also that the NPA is responsible for the delay caused by then acting head Mokotirium Shev's decision to unlawfully uh, withdraw the prosecution against Zuma on the basis of the so-called spy tape recordings. Now, of course, the NPA is saying essentially that Jacob Zuma cannot make himself out to be a victim of its delays, but he has been effectively complicit. He was with the NPA fighting the DA's application to challenge Mukaterium Shea's decision. And he also, as you rightly pointed out, um, they're, they're arguing, embarked on a sort of uh, strategy of cam- uh, litigation known as the Stalingrad campaign, a term that was coi- uh, a term coined by Zuma's former lawyer, Kemp J. Kemp, in which he effectively, as, as was the term used with Stalingrad, fought the, fought the NPA in every room, in every street, in every house, in every burning house, I think was the phrase Kemp used. So they're saying Jacob Zuma also had access to untrammeled state resources that an estimated 16 to 32 million rand was utilized in those Stalingrad campaigns, which of course we now know he needs to pay back following other court rulings that were made. But they're saying that, you know, if if he succeeds in this permanent stay application, the state's argument is it's going to be irreparably damaging to the concept of equality before the law. So it's going to send a message to ordinary South Africans that if you're politically powerful, if you have access to this untrammeled state funding as the former president did, you can effectively avoid being brought before the law. I, I, I was, Zuma's argument, yeah. of course, is, is very different. Yeah, I was listening to that argument uh, by uh, Advocate Trengo saying that, of course, you know, uh, former President Jacob Zuma must be seen to be uh, equal uh, before the law as you and I would be. Uh, but doesn't and that... Was, you, doesn't that, that was one of the crucial yeah. aspects that Audrey Dazwabo, when he gave the spy tapes ruling, 
he actually said that Mulcatedium Share had made this decision with the kind of specter of Zuma's inauguration in May hanging over him. Remember, he made the decision in yeah, April. Yeah. And that, you know, he felt all this pressure and he, he, um, you know, he wasn't applying his mind. But he also, in that judgment, refers to the fact that Mshek could not have really thought about the kind of message that his decision would send to ordinary South Africans yeah. about the principle of equality before the law. And that is a line of argument that the state has really um, you know, persisted with very powerfully in, in its argument today. Yeah. Isn't that perhaps in itself, I mean, I understand the power of that argument, but doesn't that argument... Uh, do damage to what the argument is actually supposed to do in that uh, Jacob Zuma is no longer going to face just the charges that he's facing, but he's also facing them because he is now Jacob Zuma or he is this important man. Uh, so, so if you understand my question, uh, precisely the reason why he the charges were dropped back in the days of Mukotedi Mshe was because he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a big man, right? And now the state is calling for those charges to be reinstated precisely because he's a good, he's a big man. Uh, uh, so as not to give the impression that he is not going to be charged because he's a big man. Did you get my, my question? Yeah, no, no, I absolutely do. And I think it's a really important one because the fact of the matter is that Jacob Zuma was charged in the way that he was because the state's allegation is that he misused his official position as yeah. it was deputy president at that stage to do favors for Shabir Sheikh as a consequence of this corrupt retainer inverted comma agreement that was, that was put in place. And I mean, if you read the charge sheets in the indictment, Aubrey, it's all about what the deputy president, as he then was, is constitutionally mandated to do, what his official sort of oath of office and what he needs to do constitutionally to ensure he acts in an appropriate manner. So, of course, his political position is at the heart of this case. Yeah. He contends that, you know, I was targeted, that, you know, that I, I was a threat to Tabo Mbeki um, back in the day, and, you know, my political ambitions were, were a big aspect of why I was the, the target of this prosecution, why Bulalani Nuka was terrified that I'd be exonerated in the Sheikh case, and he chose not to charge me, which, of course, the NPA completely denies. But what is interesting with Vim Trengrove also saying at some point that, you know, even though Zuma's reputation may have been damaged by his association with Sheikh, that um, in fact his political ambitions were not destroyed by these corruption allegations against him. And indeed, they almost seemed to flourish. He became the president of the ANC. He was elected to the highest office of the land. But I think your point is also interesting because I think that what, what has not really come through, which, and one of the issues that is very much alive to me, is that if one tracks the conduct of the NPA um, towards Jacob Zuma, it very much aligns with um, his, his status as a political outsider, as it were, to his status as the president. The NPA took on Zuma's cause and fought tooth and nail in the spy tapes litigation to prevent him from being prosecuted at the exact stage that he was the president. And I think that and now that he's out of power, he's a political outsider once more, there's this renewed effort to prosecute him again. And I think that what your question is, you know, somewhat alludes to is that dynamic, this kind of aspect of how power yes. and privilege 
has led into some of the crucial decisions that the NPA has, has made mm. and whether they can defend those decisions in light of their constitutional mm. mandate. Well, as a supplement to that question, perhaps to give greater clarity to what I'm trying to ask, is that uh, thus far we have heard no arguments about the substance of the charges. We've only heard arguments about procedural matters, uh, which goes directly to the heart of what you've just explained now, that at this stage it appears that the Zuma camp is uh, fighting on a matter of of procedure rather than uh, the essential issues, the substance of the charges themselves. Well, absolutely, and they've they've stated as much them, as themselves. You know, Musa Sikakani said this is not about the guilt or innocence of, J- of Jacob Zuma. It's essentially the conduct of the NPA and whether that conduct has enabled him um, through these various processes, through these issues of delay or unreasonable delay, et cetera, et cetera, to have a fair trial. So, you know, the, the NPA, and the, but the NPA, you know, keeps coming back to that. We saw it. Um, in Trengrove's argument where he, he said, you know, we have a very strong case against both Jacob Zuma and Talis. We have very, very strong evidence against them. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Shabir Sheikh was put on trial for corrupting Jacob Zuma. He was found guilty of corrupting Jacob Zuma. There were four instances which the High Court accepted showed that Jacob Zuma had in some ways subverted his official functions to, you know, quote-unquote, do the bidding of Shabir Sheikh and also found that, indeed, there was a corrupt agreement that was facilitated by Sheikh with Talia's, the French arms company, to, for Jacob Zuma to offer his so-called political protection against, for Talia's, um against uh, you know, any potential arms deal yep. investigation. Now, of course, Zuma says is that you, you know, his argument is that you tried me in, in my absence. I didn't have the chance to cross-examine Sheikh. My rights in this regard were fundamentally um, damaged. And he has a very different take on that. But ultimately, a lot of the, you know, the evidence that will be used against him has already been rendered admissible in, in the Sheikh case. And what a court that eventually, if it does eventually try him, does with that. I mean, is this stuff just admissible? Yeah. I mean, I think if this trial runs, there are going to be fascinating legal questions that are going to be brought in precisely because of the conviction of Shabir Sheikh. In the vernacular, Jacob Zuma has earned the nickname O Mapunyuga Bempet. Direct translation really is that he slips through the fingers of those who believe they've got a tight grip on him. And looking at the conversation you and I have just had, uh, some of these these arguments, you know, are quite compelling, um, Karen, coming from uh, his uh, legal team. I mean... um, Sure, I mean, I, I don't buy the, the just in law, I, j- I just don't buy the whole thing around, I don't have money uh, story. Uh, I suppose that can be argued in a different way. But that strange relationship between the NPA during the Zuma years and the NPA after the Zuma years seems in my mind to create enough, enough, um, how shall we call this, enough uh, mud in the water for judges to perhaps say, no, man, we need to throw this thing out. Uh, your thoughts? Look, I would be quite surprised if the court rules in Zuma's favor precisely because of that issue of, of equality before the law. But we, like, if, if they, uh, yeah, I think it's it's going to be, I mean, from the questions and the kind of battering that Talia's and, and Lizzie Sikakani face, 
the comparison, you know, in the questioning that they've asked from Trengrove and, and Andrew Breitenbach, they've been, they have been robust, but they've certainly been a lot more restrained than they were with, with Zuma and Tales' lawyers. But also, you know, they came back again and again to Mokotedium Shea's decision in the spy tapes matter. And, you know, I think at one stage, Judge, it's the same said to, to Vim Trengrove, but, I mean, don't you have to assume responsibility here? We, we expect better of the NDPP. So in many respects, this is a case where, you know, when in the early stages of the Zuma prosecution, um, you know, the, the state had sort of under Vusi Piccoli and to a degree Bulalani Nuka, but maybe not towards the end, there was a sense of, you know, the NPA coming into the fight with clean hands. That's no longer the case. There's a lot of water under this bridge. A lot has occurred. There's a lot that we're aware of. You know, the spy tapes, recordings emerged. Make of those what you, what you will. But this, the NPA is, in, to some degree or another, also on trial here. Yeah. And I think when this judgment comes out, you know, I don't think that that organization is going to be completely exonerated yeah. in its conduct. Yeah. And I yeah. think there will be harsh words for a number of individuals in that organization about what exactly happened here. For the listener who's listening to our conversation now, what what do you think the judges are listening for? Um, clearly, the, the, the trial at this stage hasn't reached the level where the conversation is about the, the substance of the charges. It's really about procedural matters. But what do you think the judges are listening for? And which way do you think they are leaning at this stage? I know that there have been some very, very sharp questions for the uh, legal representative of Tales and uh, those of Jacob Zuma too. Uh, but what do you think the judges are listening for? It's really this issue of an unreasonable delay. Uh, has there been an unreasonable delay? Who is responsible for that unreasonable delay? Can we lay the blame for that unreasonable delay at the door of the state. And has that unreasonable delay resulted in forensic prejudice to Jacob Zuma and Tyler to the degree that they cannot receive a fair trial? They can't remember witnesses are dead or missing. They can't, they're not in a position to defend themselves. Um, and their rights have been so fundamentally compromised that it's the state, there's just no option but for a court to intervene and say we need to permanently stay this prosecution. Remember, onus is very high. I mean, a permanent stay of prosecution, the Constitutional Court has said, is, is, a, is a pretty extraordinary remedy. It's yep. something that has to be utilized in, in very, very exceptional circumstances because, as the court has said, and Van Trengrove also stressing this, you know, particularly when charges are of a very serious nature, and then the charges against Tales and Zuma are very serious, racketeering, corruption, fraud, they go to the heart of, of what has been very damaging force in our society. The courts have pronounced, I mean, the, the, the NPA in its heads of arguments, in its papers, has a whole section called the scourge of corruption. Um, and, you know, does is, is the prejudice that is, has there been proven prejudice? And is it so substantial that it really, in, in, according to the arguments proposed by the train group, overrides the public interest okay. in seeing people implicated in serious offences right. to justice? Karen Morn, thank you very much for that uh, report. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, and we watch this with great interest. Thank you for having me. I All really right. enjoy talking to you. Thank you very much, Karen Morn, specialist reporter at Tiso Black Star. Granular detail, yeah? When I come back, I